Hey, good evening. It's good to be with y'all tonight. Um, I am so excited and, and uh, nervous about this sermon series. It's called Home, and we're going to explore, we're going to comb through like tons of different passages of Scripture throughout the semester from the Old and New Testament, Psalms, Prophets, Revelation, all these things, uh, to just explore some things that the Scriptures have to tell us about home, our experience of home or homelessness. Um, and you might, not name, you might not name it this way, but we are, each of us, uh, just in the business daily of trying to make our home in things in this world. Um, we're trying not to lose our sense of home. We're trying to gain our sense of home and to establish it. And we just keep losing it. And we, most of us just feel homesick all the time. And C.S. Lewis uh, says something to this effect. He says that when we begin to touch on the topic of home, it makes everybody feel shy. Because you begin to touch on those, the deepest longings of our heart, and, and those are hard things to put words to and to name. And, and I felt that even in the prep for this. I, I told our team when I was thinking through sermon series, this is one like I wrote down, and I was like, oh, I can't talk about this right now. Like, I have to wait another 20 years. I can't teach on this. And I was like, why don't we just talk about the thing I really want to talk about? But it's so heavy. And anyway, you're going to experience comfort and disruption throughout this series, and, and I... Um, though I, I am, I'm sorry for the ways in which God, through his word, might mess with you a little bit and get in your kitchen, um, I hope that he stirs up in you desires for deep, deep things, and I hope that you do feel known and loved. I hope you bring some people with you who need to hear some of this stuff, too, on Tuesday nights. But let's pray, and we'll get into our sermon and our, our lengthy text tonight. Um, Father, thank you that we are home in your heart and that you make your home in ours. Thank you for the ways in which um, your scriptures speak to each and every one of us in the peculiar facets of our lives, that we are found and found out by you, and that we find we're not alone. Tonight, would you um, send your spirit to this room, to my friends in this place, and would you help them to identify um, with the ways in which you've made them, for the, the ways in which you are calling them to yourself for the desires and longings that they have that they should not try to squelch. Help us not feel alone tonight. Increase the sense in which we are unashamed in this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In 2009, uh, Phil Wickham, he's a Christian artist. I don't even know if he still makes albums. I don't know. You guys are all like in middle school or something, 2009. I don't know what age you were, but maybe younger. Elementary school. Early elementary school. I'm 42. All right, we just said that. Okay, here we go. Um, 2009, Phil Wickham released a song called Eden. Eden. Has anybody heard of it? Anybody heard of that song? Thank the Lord. Okay, good. Because this might be more embarrassing if you did. So he, he imagined, it's the first song on this album he released, and he imagined what it must have been like for Adam and Eve like some months or years after being exiled from the Garden of Eden. What it must have been like for them to look back and remember what they used to have. Genesis chapters 1 through 3 are, are pregnant with every theme and contour in the whole of the biblical story. Genesis 1 through 3. They're a goldmine for our understanding of who God is and who we are and what he has been up to in the whole of creation. In Genesis 1, we read of this poetic and, and magisterial making of the world. In Genesis 2, the camera zooms in on the most marvelous thing that God has made, humanity. 
humankind and their, their central role in the whole story of the cosmos. We read that humans were intended to unfold the latent possibilities in God's world to make what God has already made beautiful to make it more beautiful. And they were to do it together, not alone. Not, it's not a single story of someone whose heart Jesus was living in and then they just went on with their day or something in a community with the Lord on the earth. They were to do this in concert with God's creation, in harmony with each other, and dwelling with God himself. And it's so good that the whole of it is summarized in the last verse of Genesis chapter 2, and it's our verse for tonight. This is how good it was that the man and the woman were naked and unashamed. That's how good it was. Can you imagine what it would be like to be naked and unashamed? I don't just mean without clothes, but maybe that too. But without titles, without the certain skills and masks that you and I put forward into the world and ask people to interact with, without your humor, without the stories, without how hard you work or how smart you are or how much you don't care about things, or without the follows and without the aspirations and without the work that you put into your body and without the money you plan to make or have saved up already. Imagine a world where all of that is stripped away and you still felt no shame, naked and unashamed. This is how God made things and this is how we imagine things before sin enters the world in the biblical story. And then in Genesis chapter three, these naked and unashamed humans wonder if maybe God isn't looking out for their good. And there's tremendous, there's tremendous mystery in this except I think we all know it and do it in our own very lives, but there's still tremendous mystery in this. Maybe they thought God was holding out on them. Maybe they thought that he couldn't possibly be as good as he seems to be. Maybe they just wanted to help him out. Whatever the reason, they stopped trusting that he on his own was out for their own good. And they wanted to take a little bit of that control into their own hands, and their eyes were opened, and they were ashamed. And maybe you haven't put your finger on, on, on just how central shame is to the brokenness of the world. But in the biblical telling of things, the first fruit of things going awry in the world is shame. The first fruit of things going awry in God's creation is shame. The first thing humans feel when they live out from under the story of the goodness of God is shame. If the picture of everything being right in the world is being naked and unashamed, then the picture of everything wrong is really shame and hiding. And if you want to know where God is taking all of this, where he's taking you, where the story goes in the end, it's out from shame and hiding. It's to naked and unashamed. And you can read about this in Genesis chapter 3, but God exiles Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden because he does not want that Garden of Eden to be populated with shame. And he doesn't want Adam and Eve or anyone else to live that way forever. What a horrible way to live forever, hiding and in shame. And so through blessings and curses and promises, God makes known to them that he has a plan to conquer shame and death and to restore them to life, but all of that is going to happen outside the Garden. And Phil Wickham imagines what life must have been like for Adam and Eve after they were exiled. 
How many nights in a row did they cry in the cold, remembering the, night, the life that they used to have? What was it like for them learning to hold each other, but feeling ashamed now? How many years went by before one night around the fire, Eve turns to Adam and says, did we make all that up? You know what I mean? Like our memories are so messy and impressionable. And when so much time has passed from significant events, you can doubt if you remember them correctly. During my senior year of high school, I saw one of the most courageous and remarkable athletic performances in my life. My high, the, my high school, <laughs> that sounds possessive, it's not. The high school I went to, the women's soccer team, uh, made it to the state championship in my state. Um, and when regulation had ended, the game was tied, but our all-state goalie um, had severely injured one of her legs just minutes before the game was over or before the end of regulation. And so the championship was going to the shootout and she demanded to be left in. She'd been our goalie all season and she wanted to be in the game, of course, at the critical, most critical moment. And so two teammates, two of these gals on the team, walked up to her and put her between their arms and they walk her to the middle of the goal box and they put her right in the middle and she's standing on one leg. And then they walked away and they had to walk behind the net and she's standing there on one leg like this while the other team's taking PKs, okay? And every single shot, this woman would dive and try to block the shot and when she landed on the ground, she'd just like make this god-awful sound, you know, and she'd just lay there crying. And her teammates would come back out and pick her up and they'd walk her, back, they'd walk her behind the net for the next team to do their shot or for their, her team to do the shot and then they'd walk her back out and she did in the middle and she blocked more shots than the other goalie and we won the state championship. And the whole stadium, I mean, all of us were like weeping and screaming. You know what I mean? It was crazy, crazy, right? Eight years after the fact, I'm in a staff meeting with the house, and I'm telling everybody on staff this story. And as I'm telling it, I don't think I'd ever told it before. As I'm telling it, it's so funny, this is now the third time I've told it, and I still Googled some of these facts because of this. As I'm telling it, I was like, God, this sounds so dramatic. It's like a movie. There's no way it happened just like that as I'm telling this story. And this gal who was the associate director on our staff at the time, Janie Strait, goes, wait a minute, did you go to Snohomish High School? And I said, yeah, did you, what? She's like, I was on the other team. That was the most incredible thing I've ever seen. You know, and I'm like, so I remembered it right? And she's like, yes, and it felt so liberating. You know, like, I was, like this thing I remembered that was so amazing, I'm like, did I remember it correctly? And I was so relieved, like I needed some confirmation, right, that I wasn't nuts, right? Um, has that ever happened to you? Or something so good, potentially bad. For today, we're talking about good. Tonight, we're talking about good, though. Something good happened to you, and you're like, did I remember it correctly? Because that was amazing. Did it really happen that way? And you wonder if your memory's playing tricks on you? I imagine that Adam and Eve must have experienced that with Eden, with Eden. And that maybe they told themselves the stories so that they wouldn't forget. It's perhaps the most important reason for us to tell each other stories so that we don't forget. So Phil, Phil Wickham wrote these lyrics, imagining the kinds of things that they might have said around the fire some years later after being exiled from the garden. Here's a few lyrics from the song. This is Adam talking to God. I remember how you would call my name and I would meet you at the garden gate, how the glory of your love would shine. And I remember when the stars were young, you breathed life into my lungs. I never felt so alive. I want to see you face to face where being in your arms is the permanent state. I want it like it was back then. I want to be in Eden. It's a pretty powerful exercise to take their story seriously and imagine what it must have been like for them. 
Too often, friends, we make every story about ourselves. And we never find what we're looking for. And just as an aside, perhaps we'll find more gold in the scriptures if we ask more questions and make fewer demands. Maybe. But what's really interesting to me is that I can't listen to that song without crying. Like, I can't. I weep. I've cried like 10 times today just like writing words to this sermon because I keep thinking about this song and what it must have been like for Adam and Eve. And some of that's probably out of compassion, like imaginative compassion. What must it have been like for them to be sitting around the fire one night? I mean, there was a, there was a season and a time, if this story has any kind of literalness to it, there's a season and a time where, where they might have been sitting around a fire and they could look to the right. And just over there beyond the hill, we used to be there, but we're not anymore. And now we have to deal with the consequences of that. And that's just heartbreaking to me to imagine that scenario. But I think it's deeper for me. Like, I think I'm so wrecked by this story because it seems like my story. But I've never been in Eden. Like, I've, I've just, heads up, never been there. I wasn't there when the stars were young. I've never met God at a garden gate, whatever that means, right? I, how can I go back to a place I've never even been? Why is it that I resonate with that? Why does it feel so much like, more like a memory to me? even though I've never experienced it. I've lived in 24 different places, homes, throughout four different states. I've lived with multiple sets of parental figures and multiple configurations of siblings. None of it was idyllic, okay? So not only was it massively diverse and all over the place, when I was in, by the time I finished college, I had lived in the same city for longer than I'd ever lived in in my entire life. That was just during my college career, five years. When somebody says, where's home? I was like, my dorm. That's where home is, you know? And it was so volatile and kind of all over the place. I'd, I've never known a home that had no shame. And it was really hard for me to even identify where home is if it's anywhere. So I was incredibly confused. Why I felt so deeply what I think Adam and Eve felt. Like it was just kind of this weird thing. I, I remember being in my car going, praying and going, Lord, this is super confusing. Tears, you know, whatever, okay? Adam and Eve walked with God and knew what it was like to have no shame. Of course they missed that. Of course they did. But how can I miss something I've never even experienced? Why do I connect so deeply with that story? Well, friends, some of the language of the Bible can be pretty hard to freaking connect with because it's an ancient library of texts with a ton of different authors written over 1,500 years in a variety of different literary genres. The Bible isn't easy to understand. This text is inspired and infallible, but it's also cross-cultural and old. And so the Israelites were promised a land flowing with milk and honey, but you and I don't think much about milk and honey. When they were told that each person would one day get to sit under their own vine, we aren't like, oh my gosh, that sounds amazing, you know? <laughs> but a land flowing with milk and honey is like the ancient version of an abundance mindset. A land flowing with milk and honey is a place with the resources, where the resources you need are not scarce, where everything and everyone is taken care of and where, 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 where no one has a lack of anything. A land flowing with milk and honey is a land with no anxiety. And sitting under your own vine is an ancient picture of having everything you need. If you have your own vine, then you have your own land out of which that vine grows. And if you have your own vine, you have something which produces food, and something which provides shelter with its leaves, and something which provides a gift that you can trade with others. 
And maybe the language of living in a lush, ancient garden of Eden doesn't, on the surface, seem to touch on your deepest longings. Adam and Eve did not want to be in some abstract plot of land called Eden, and that was enough for them. They wanted everything Eden represents. Innocence. Seeing God face to face. No broken hearts. Feeling alive. To be naked and unashamed. And you and I want that too. We don't want to let go of those places where we've seen a glimpse of it. We're afraid we'll never have it. We're worried that we'll make the wrong decisions and miss out on it. For some of us, perhaps the longing and desires for that haven't been awakened much yet, right? Maybe we've spent our entire lives aiming, I shouldn't laugh, this is horrible, but we do this. Maybe we've spent our entire lives aiming so low just so that we're not disappointed. As kids, maybe you can remember this, many of us, Maybe all of us as kids somewhere along the way have huge, glorious, and romantic desires and dreams. And we kill off those things because we thought they were too romantic or unrealistic at some point in our lives. Or we're systematically trying to figure out how to do that now so that we're not so hurt or disappointed. But friends, we Christians are those who believe we've never been realistic or romantic enough. In the words of C.S. Lewis, our desires are not too strong, but too weak. Maybe some of you have never been told that the thing we long for most and desire most deeply have resolution in the promises of God. This semester, I hope that we stir up some of these desires, that we awaken desires for what Adam and Eve called Eden, for what the Israelites called Zion, for what the New Testament writers call the new heavens and the new earth, for what we're calling home. In a sense, our exploration of the biblical ideas of home will, will bring comfort and hope. They really will. The things that you really long for and really want actually do have a place, and they are brought to us in Jesus, in part now, in fullness later. There is un, unspeakable levels of comfort and hope in that, but they will also stir up in us homesickness because we aren't there yet. And then both will come. Both will come. It feels to me like hunger or something. Like I can deal with hunger a little bit or, or like the bathroom. Maybe that's a better one and more appropriate one. Like if you have to go to the bathroom, it's fine. But as you get close to the bathroom, you really have to go to the bathroom. You know what I'm saying? Like when we talk about home, another thing is gonna get stirred up with it and it's homesickness. It's, a, it's longings and desires that are so big that they make you vulnerable and you can't satisfy them with a date or the job or the house or the likes, or hearts, or whatever things you go after for these things. Both of these are going to get stirred up. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, he often uses the word groaning, groaning, like, you know, groaning, to describe what it's like being homesick. While we wait for the fulfillment of the promises of Jesus Christ, we groan. The earth too groans as she waits for us. Maybe you think that you, maybe you, maybe you think or you've been taught that Christians are supposed to be content. And in a way we are, if, if by contentment you mean that we are not frantically grasping after things of the world. Yes, that is actually how we are to live. But if by contentment you mean that we don't want anything else, you are wrong, friend. For we want more than this world can offer and we focus on it we pine for it. We tell each other stories about it until we groan. 
until we acknowledge with our lips and our hearts and our bodies that what we long for this world cannot give us, that we are homesick and we want to go home, or rather, that we want home to come to us. This is the kind of thing that we're going to be stirring up between now and May. And a lot of these themes, because we're not just going through one particular story of the Bible, and we're not systematically going through some book in some ordered way, a lot of these themes are going to keep getting repeated, and they're going to dance with each other throughout the whole semester as we journey through all these kinds of places in the Bible, homesickness and longing, feeling estranged from places where we used to think we belong to. We're going to confront despair and that soul-sucking habit of settling that we so frequently get into. C.S. Lewis is probably going to come up a lot this semester. If you've read him, he has a lot to say about this. Friends, God has placed a desire for home in your bones. He designed you for something like Eden, for Zion, for the new heavens and the new earth to be naked and unashamed, to see him face to face, to be loved and known. He designed you to be home. But we're not there yet. And if you feel homesick, it's a clue that you're on the right track. Don't squash or numb or try to satisfy on your own strength that sense of longing inside of you. That groaning, it's a clue that you're supposed to follow home. It's a homing beacon, so to speak. (laughs) And it's telling you something, that you were made for more than what you've experienced. We Christians are homesick people on our way. God has made us for this very purpose, to be at home with him and with one another And he has given us his spirit as a guarantee of what's to come. And through his spirit and his spirit at work in the church, he is with us until the end, even on our homesick journey. And I would love for you to be on a little bit of this homesick journey with us this semester. Let's take a minute. We're often going to take a minute after we hear from the word of God um, to be silent. We have so little of that in our world. Um, also seems apt after RJ shared what he shared. Uh, so we're going to take a little bit of time to be silent, and you can pray. Um, you can just be in silence if you want. Uh, we'll try to pose a question each week for maybe for you to attach to if it's terrifying to sit in silence for a, for a minute. Um, and then I'll close us in prayer. Uh, but for the next bit, if it's helpful, I would encourage you to think about where in your life do you feel homesick right now?
Lord, have mercy. We are so very homesick. So homesick, in fact, we try not to think about it. Father, help us to to know that that our their deepest longings and the ways in which we haven't been satisfied help us to know that those are things which point us to something good and true and beautiful. Help us to be people who don't quiet those things in us and try to settle for something less until we die. Help us to be people who stay awake and alive to those things and bring those around us awake and alive to those things too and let us be people who have our eyes fixed where our Lord is seated. Teach us, Lord, to long for a better country for a better home than any of us have ever seen. As we pray together, remind us of that. As we sing praises to you um, and and practice a kind of, of harmony and unity in our voices with our bodies, would you renew in us things and, and bring new uh, belief and new thoughts to us? May whatever homesickness we have lead us to you. And would you come quick and come soon? As we sing praises to you right now, receive them with joy, Father. Um, And as we obey you and and follow you, would you make your home within us even as we make our home 